Welcome to Beyond the Labyrinth, one of several places where I, Hannah Gracian, and my co-beagler, Alfred Ruiz Visson, engage in the labyrinthine pursuit of questions of meaning. See what else we're up to at Dedalia.net. There you'll find A Push of the Pendulum, Alfred's fantasy novel, a bookful bequest, the collection of my reflections on classic novels, and Keeping It All the Year, a blog inspired by Dickens' A Christmas Carol. You can also subscribe to this podcast at Dedalia.net. Today, we're going to nose around in a loosely gathered suite of ideas arising from Sir Thomas Mallory's The Mort d'Arthur and some modern interpretations, including the film Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So one often hears about timeless texts. And of course, I don't think any such thing actually exists, but you hear about it. The, the Arthurian story, though, certainly qualifies if anything does. There's so many different versions, from the medieval sources that Mallory drew upon to the almost countless modern versions that use Mallory as a source. There's Tennyson's 19th century Idols of the King, and there's Twain's Connecticut Yankee. Then in the 20th century, some highlights include T.H. White's The Once and Future King, Mary Stewart's The Crystal Cave, and Marion Zimmer Bradley's The Mists of Avalon. In film, there are many versions, including Excalibur, the very recent Netflix adaption, Cursed, and of course, Monty Python's Holy Grail. Interestingly, of all of this, the Python treatment may be the closest to Mallory. There's a randomness to the adventures in Monty Python and the Holy Grail that rings true to the original. The 1970s film has become a classic with legions of fans who can recite the entire movie. Yes, it is funny if you like Python-esque humor, but I think there's something deep going on in the film a juxtaposition between modern and medieval thinking that gives the film a depth that, even if unintentional, is very real. While medieval experience may seem random to us, it was a disjointed time of great transition, as is our own. The clash between the two raises lots of interesting questions about meaning. At any rate, there seems to be a perennial fascination with this text, as so many generations have taken it up and rewritten it, using it as a vehicle to reflect upon their own lives. Certainly, White and Bradley do this, and Python in their own way. So what is this text, this story? Le Mort d'Arthur was written by Sir Thomas Mallory in the 15th century in what is technically Middle English, though it's modern enough that it reads a lot like Shakespeare. Most versions currently available are translations that attempt to retain the archaic sound of the Middle English. Mallory's book is a reworking of legends and tales of Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table, Arthur may have been a war chief in the fight against the Saxons, but Mallory's gathering of the legends does not capture the sense of purpose implied by that mission and instead presents the knight's activities with a jolting sense of randomness. An example, and I'm quoting, thus Sir Lancelot rested him long with play and game, and then he thought himself to prove himself in strange adventures. Then he bade his nephew, Sir Lionel, for to make him ready, for we too will seek adventures, end quote. And off he goes, fighting random people to the death, almost, sleeping with random women and conveniently excused by the narrator as under enchantment whenever necessary. What surprises me about the Arthurian legend is just this compulsion to keep retelling the stories which may not have any factual basis at all. And not just to retell them, but to invest them with portent. Every interpretation, including Mallory's, seems to have an agenda. So on the face of it, this clearly is a text that's very promising fodder for so many authors from the modern period. 
so what's going on here? What's the fascination? It's, it seems to provide a playground for people to wrestle with issues from their own time. And somehow at the same time to share in some kind of hope for a better world or an idealized lost one. A late medieval text, a retelling of history to suit 15th century purposes has become for us a source of fantasy, a reflection on what it means to be human. Right, so what I think of as one of the most entertaining um, interpretations of um, the Arthur story is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And that's of course because Monty Python is entertaining, but it's also because it feels like it doesn't take it too seriously. I have a very hard time with taking this story too seriously. And so in Monty <laughs> Python, we have a good dose of the randomness that is really there. And in fact, that's what really shocked me looking back at Mort Arthur after 20 years was to see how very like the Monty Python interpretation is. It's very, very similar in, in several ways to the original Mort Darthur. Well, we call that the original. That it actually isn't the first, but to the one that in English is sort of considered the classic collection. You know, it's just about as random as Monty Python. I, I can see why they chose to address it the way they did. Alfred, I know you've got practically the entire thing memorized. Perhaps you can um, point to some interesting examples. Sure. Um, well, and I think that's probably why the other treatments bother you so much, because they do take it very, very seriously. They use it as, I mean, fodder is probably the wrong, not the quite the right word, but they use it as a, as a, uh, a canvas to, to create some very, very serious struggles with what's, you know, what's, what's going on in our own time. And, and, you know, in the, in the Python version, I do actually think is doing a little bit of that, but it does it in this you know, hilarious random way. And, and I think there's so many examples. Um, well, you know, in Python, you can say something meaningful, but you can acknowledge at the same time that it's not meant to be taken too seriously. You know what I mean? Like, like that's part of what the appeal is of Python is that it says things that are real and things that matter while at the same time, not taking itself too seriously. Well, I think in the movie, they don't, it's not that they say anything, it's the way things are put together and that juxtaposed. That says something. I yeah, think that yeah, says something. Yeah, right. So, yeah, so, exactly. so yeah, so let's maybe talk about some examples. Um, I mean, it happens right at the beginning of the film, actually. You know, they get through all the silly credits, the title credits. Llamas and, and such. Yes, the llamas and the, and the moose. And, um, and interestingly, they said it in the 10th century, which, you know, I don't know if that was random. Um, but the 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 titles uh, after the titles over the, the it says England 932 AD or something some, somewhere in there and and which is both later than the probably the historical Arthur and earlier than what Mallory does with it but neither here nor there um, really the, the the very first scenes of the film you know Arthur and his um, you know his squire are galloping along through the countryside with their you know coconut horses and they run into the the, the two peasants who are who are literally wallowing in the in the in the muck and you know and and uh and uh, you know there's some lovely filth down here dennis you know that whole scene um oh, they're collecting a uh, fire fire well, it's not clear what they're doing. I mean, I think that's part of the point is they're just saying, well, these are medieval people. This is the dark ages. They're literally wallowing in filth, which is of course a, a word for excrement. 
And yes, I suppose. I figured they're going to dry it to burn it, but maybe not. Well, maybe okay. so. Okay, but, yeah. but onward, onward, yes. They're doing something. He, he yeah, comes in some... contact with them, and he does indeed. <laughs> right, and, and again, it's even that one line, there's some lovely filth down here, you know, is to the modern mind, that's so horrifying. And so they're sort of like, oh, well, there's something that they're doing here that to them made sense. And then they have this whole crazy discussion where, you know, Arthur says, you know, old woman, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm I'm not a man I'm you know I'm a woman and I'm not old I'm 37 you know which of course that He's was old, old actually yeah yeah um, <laughs> for that period and, and, and so then he starts going on about you know narco narco syndicalist communes and and you know how you know well, who made you king you know and the lady of the lake you know held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the waters you know and all, all that whole hilarious scene but it is this it is this clash between what would make sense to us and what would make sense to 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 them done again in a very lighthearted way um but it's 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 just patently absurd but i think there's there's a serious more serious point underlying it and um well at least it, it, you can see it that way sure um so that's that's one example um i mean and all it leads this... very quickly to the swallows which is another yes i it does the same thing it's not the this the topic maybe isn't quite as serious but you have science entering the picture mm -hmm. Um, which of course is another modern um, invention, right? Yes, the, the, our 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 need to to quantify everything and 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 make it into you know, this reductionist view of reality, which um, you know just didn't doesn't fit. Well, describe that scene briefly for any of our listeners who don't remember. Uh, yeah, so they so they approach the first castle, and, and Arthur is out trying to you know basically recruit knights for the round table and. You know, he's trying he comes to the castle and says well you know is your um is your master around and of course there is no master because this is the narco syndicalist commune people um, which makes no sense in arthur's world um but you know he, the guy asks about you know you know what horses you know where, where where you don't have horses we just rode up what do you mean rode? you don't have you're banging two halves of coconuts together and 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 he's arthur to, to arthur that's that's a that question doesn't matter and, right. and well, where'd you get the coconuts? I mean, this is very sort of modern, like, well, wait a minute, I want to understand this rationally. Where'd you get the coconuts from? Well, we, we found them. Wait, what, you know, coconuts are, what, they migrate? Yes. Yeah, they, you know, and then the whole discussion of, well, how did they get here? Well, perhaps the swallow carried them and by talking about air mass ratios and, you know. Yes. Five yes. ounce bird cannot carry a whatever ounce coconut, you know. Which to Arthur is both incomprehensible, well, incomprehensible and infuriating. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It prevents um, him from getting the job done. Right. And so then he sort of reverts to this um, authoritarian position of sh just shut up, you know, and, and, and which, of course, doesn't compute with the with the modern liberal democratic mindset. But yeah, there's there's so many scenes like that. Uh, but the one the, the one that really, I think, uh, jumps out to me, and it's actually a series of scenes, is it's is at one point in the film, you don't even see which night it, I mean, you have to really be watching it, but there's just this, they're in the woods and there's a modern historian standing in the woods, talking about the knights around, talking about King Arthur, you know, he's like being filmed for a documentary, right? He's yes. doing what to us is a very familiar thing, which is, which is to analyze this, you know, yeah. this world and the scene. And suddenly one of the knights from the round table gallops into the scene and, and beheads him, just whacks his head off because he just happened to be in the way, you know? Right. Which is exactly the sort of thing that happens in Mort Arthur. You know, he's this guy wasn't important. He was a peasant or, or he wasn't a knight. And so therefore, you know, doesn't, and he just, they just whack his head off and keep Galt Milliam stop, 
right? It's sort of like in modern terms, it's like a, it's a hit and run. And, and, and this just happens randomly in the middle of the movie. And so you're sort of like, particularly the first time you see the film, you're like, what just happened? What was that? And they don't pursue it. Like it's just- And it feels wrong. I mean, to a absolutely. modern person, it feels terribly wrong. Although you got to think, if they had bothered to tell the story of what just happened in, in Lamort D'Arthur, if that story was told, what would it be? Oh my gosh. They would make up some God knows what about who that guy was and why he had to be beheaded and, you know, some evil. Uh, right. Yeah, I'm sure. But in, but in the, in the film, they, they, you know, just the scene happens and then it's gone and they do, and then, and then they come back a little later and there's a police officer, a Bobby, you know, a, a modern British police officer interviewing this woman, you know, over the body, like, you know, you know, and so, so they're investigating this crime. Well, and that's a subplot that continues to the end, yes, right? I mean, right. And, and then yeah. it comes back at the end of the film where, um, you know, it always struck me that they didn't quite know how to end the movie and, and, and what ends up happening. They're about to have this huge battle over, over the castle argh, where the, the, the grail is being held by the, you know, the evil French knights and, and, you know, the battle lines are forming and then, the, and then the police show up with the, with the, you know, the paddy wagons and they arrest them. You know, so the Knights of the Round Table get arrested, and then, you know, and the guy puts his hand over the camera, and that's how the movie ends. Yeah. And, and I think that that putting his hand over the camera, you know, that's really interesting because it's it's kind of it's kind of saying this again. What to the medieval mind would have made sense? Okay, well, we we're looking for the this valuable thing, and these people have, so we're going to have a battle, and we're lying, you know, and this is all perfectly normal. To the modern mind is 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 criminal, and and you know. So, so it is this fascinating juxtaposition, and then you could go through the film and talk about lots of scenes. Um, you know, there's there's other ones with you know with the, the the witch burning and the you know. But I was going to say, I think one of the things the film does that I'm, I'm trying to think if I if I noticed this in Arthur at all, but you know, the film makes a lot of the peasants. You do see them. You do because yeah. because I mean, the witch is another example. I mean. Um, and 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 of course the death cart is another example. You do see the peasants there, and they do, and I think that is an opportunity, you know, for this modern audience to consider. And I'm not sure there's very much of that really in Mort. Although I wouldn't say that I, I have looked through the book recently. I have not read the entire thing, but I don't think I think those people are much less visible, perhaps. Oh, I'm sure they are because they weren't. They weren't. They didn't matter. No, and so why do they matter in Python? I mean, it's it's funny. Well, well, again, because they're. I, I mean, well, I don't know how much they thought about this, but I mean, they're they're constructing this interpretation from a, you know, a, a, a liberal democratic point of view, where where everyday people are more important. I mean, you know, you know, I want to go for a walk. You know, I'm not dead yet. You know that that whole. I mean, that, you know, again, to the medieval mind, everyone's dropping dead of the plague. You throw them on the cart and move on, and you, you know, pitch them in a mass grave. And and not that individual, you know, not that people didn't love and have connections. But the, and there's the, the, also the, what about in the witch scene? So John Cleese um, is the one that got turned into a newt. Remember? Yeah. yeah and and yeah. he also he also plays Lancelot, right? Yes. So when you see him in that scene where he's turned into a newt, at least if you see it, you know, most of us that watch it have watched it many times, you can't help but also sort of see the echo of Lancelot. And to me, this is so telling because he, he says, she turned me into a newt. And then everybody looks at him and he's obviously not a newt. And he says, what <laughs> better? Well, <laughs> right there is this whole thing. Lancelot, yes. 
runs all over the place. He does all kinds of absurd and bad things. Yes. And every time he gets himself into a particularly bad one, the author says, oh, well, he was under enchantment. And sometimes there's a whole story about how he got mm -hmm. enchanted, which makes no sense at all. Um, and so I always think that scene is very telling because it's like, this is how it worked then. And we look at yeah. that and we're like, yeah, I don't know. It's like um, when he sleeps with Elaine, uh, you know, he's enchanted and he thinks it's Guinevere, which, you know, the, the medieval mind doesn't seem to be, or, or Mar Mallory at least doesn't seem to be bothered by Lancelot and Guinevere's relationship particularly. But, um, you know, when he, he's misled into thinking Elaine is Guinevere and, you know, it, it's, it's, he's under enchantment. Um, that, yeah, it happens. And you, and you know, that there's that, that points to a couple of interesting things. And one of which is just how, how, how they're always running into each other and not recognizing themselves. I mean, there, there are so many battles where two knights fight each other practically to the death. Mostly they don't quite die. And then they say, oh, who are you? Like, like you ask after the fight, not before the fight, right? right, right. And oh, I'm so-and-so of the round table. Oh my God, I'm of the round table too. I'm so sorry I nearly <laughs> killed you just now three or four times, you know? And it's like, what? <laughs> you guys are both in the round table and you don't even recognize each other? And so that's, that's sort of one aspect of the whole Elaine, sleeping with people, not knowing who you're sleeping with, fighting with people, not knowing who you're fighting with. How, how do they not know each other at all? It, it, it makes the whole factual basis very suspicious, which of course we knew before we started. But right, then there's right, right. also the woman thing. I mean, Elaine, you know, if you look at all these interpretations, we've got, um, we've got The Mists of Avalon by Bradley. Do you know her name? I don't remember her name. Uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley. Thank you, yes. And we've got T.H. White's Once and Future King. Um, I don't know, do we have reference to some others? But anyway, that Elaine story is sort of a typical one. And in some interpretations in Mort, there's a sinister magic being done by a woman that yep. made this happen. And it was a bad, bad woman doing bad, bad magic, messing with all the good, good men, the good, strong, good men doing good things. And they're bad woman messing with them. But, um, and I'm not sure how that one's played out in T.H. White. Is there anything interesting about Elaine and White? Well, in T.H. White, it's pretty straightforward. Um, uh, I mean, I forget which part of which part of Lancelot's agonizing over Guinevere when it happens, but he's off and he gets taken in and I think she gives him a potion or something and he, he thinks she's Lancelot. Or, sorry, he thinks she's Guinevere and, you know, away they go. And then so who that, does of course, it? Elaine does it? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Yeah. yeah. And, and then that, of course, drives Guinevere to jealousy and rage. And um, so, well, Which I mean, I think. Similar to Mort. Yeah. And in Bradley, I, it's, um, it's Morgan. And, you know, Elaine's in love with Lancelot. So she just wants it done because she wants him. But for Morgan, it's this grand kingmaking scheme, you know. Yes, yes. And she. From her perspective, she is working for the good because because Arthur has turned traitor to um, um, Avalon and yeah, yeah. she is trying to restore it and she's doing good. Yep, magic. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's so that so that's I mean, I think that's interesting because maybe one last point about Python and and, and is that the, the seeming randomness, you know, is there 
you know, did life seem more random to medieval people because of the chaos that they were subject to? And, and do we want to see order because we're sort of spoiled by a more or less settled civilization, although it seems to be becoming more and more unsettled by the day. But, you know, um, I mean, because they were living through this time of, of intense change and, 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 you know, modernity, at least, you know, 19th and 20th centuries in the, in the um, Western world has been relatively settled for, for the lucky people. Um, but it, it seems, you know, maybe, maybe life is just random like that all the time and we want to see order. I, I don't know. But I think the, 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 the point I was thinking of is these different interpretations are taking all this randomness. I mean, in other words, the randomness allows them to take it and shape it in, in, in the direction that they want yeah. to go with it. Whether yeah. that is a sort of feminist retelling of the story, you know, in, on Bradley's part, or T.H. White, you know, writing in the 1930s, um, was you know pretty unhappy guy with modernity, and and he uses the story to really make a pretty biting, uh, you know, commentary about what modern life has become, and and there are there are passages in the Once and Future King where he. He really is, um, you know, basically really idealizing these people, and and even the relationship of Ar of Lancelot and Guinevere. He sort of makes Lancelot, Guinevere, and Ar Arthur a, 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 a triad of, of friends, and, and, you know. And, and Arthur knows what's going on, but as long as nobody mentions it, he's he he because he loves both of them, he's content to sort of ignore it. And White actually holds that up as, you know, as you know, kind of heroic. Or, or noble behavior as opposed to all these modern people running around just being selfish and sleeping with each other. And I mean, it's really funny. I mean, he, he you know, he, he, he looks back and, and, and he also idealizes feudalism that, you know, the sort of taking care, yeah, yeah, there was a Lord of the Manor, but they were taking care of the peasants and, you know, the, the good ones, at least. I mean, he's Monty probably, Python's a good antidote to that now, isn't right, it? <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but I mean, the, the larger point that there's all this randomness in, in the source material that sort of allows these folks to to take it and, and shape it into something else. And if it wasn't so random, maybe that would be harder. I don't, I don't know. Well, I think, yeah. And I think, I think you could, you could make the same argument about Bradley and, and she also, by the way, um, has Arthur very well aware of what's going on between Guinevere and Lancelot. In fact, he even beds them the first time himself and oh, stays right. present to make sure that if, if a child comes, they, he can say it's, it's, he was in bed. It was his, in the oh, marriage bed. I've forgotten about yeah, that. So yeah, so she she does something. I think it's different from white, but it but it also treats that relationship with with some respect. Um, but you know, she's one of the things. One of the stories that Bradley is telling is I I think there's sort of a connection of human creativity with with the um, Avalon. Arthur, of course, in that rendition represents Christianity and Christianity represents an oppressive social force and, and, and a force that's very limiting. And that's, how, that's why magic ends, right? That's why right, right. Avalon recedes. Definitely. Um, what you said is, is very, very true. I think, you know, all these random stories are perfect fodder for, um, for people to turn the story into something you know, responding to their own goals, but why? I mean, I just cannot understand what the appeal is of this particular story. I, I don't know. Right. Well, I clearly, just... what's clearly what is it is allowing them to do is to work on a sense of, perhaps, a sense of loss. Um, I mean, it, it makes. It, I mean, what you you just said about um, 
in Bradley's treatment about Avalon receding and magic fading. I mean, that's very reminiscent of what like Tolkien does in Lord of the Rings with um, uh, with Lorien and Galadriel and, and th that part of the story where um, Galadriel is, is wielding one of the three rings, but the power of those rings is not for war or domination. The power of those rings is for preservation and, you know, and sort of stopping the power of time to erode and destroy. And she knows full well that when, when the one ring is destroyed, the three rings will lose their power and that Lorien will fade away. You know, that, that, that fairy will fade away, that the, that the sort of timeless eternal uh, nature uh, and, and, and the magic as it's understood there, which is again, a sort of a magic of peace will, will be lost. Um, and, and Christianity doesn't enter into it I and mean, that part's not the same, but, but that notion that there is this timeless set aside dimension to existence that will be lost. I mean, that to me is part of why modern people you know, do this is because we have lost something. We have, you know, as, as Descartes said, we have made ourselves the masters and possessors of nature. And in doing so, we've destroyed it. I mean, we've, we've lost, uh, you know, a, a sense of, you know, of transcendence. We've lost a sense of things larger than ourselves, of whether the powers of nature or, or whatever it is, you know, um, there is a deep sense of, of, of loss of meaning. And, and but, I, but that doesn't answer why this particular story. Um, I mean, I, I could see reading one of the versions of it and going, oh yeah, I mean, like, like I mean, I, you know, I enjoyed T.H. White, even though I don't necessarily agree with some of his editorializing, but the original, I mean, or not, again, not the original, but Mallory's treatment, you're, I mean, it's so difficult to get into. And, and um, so, so it makes me think of, of, of how did this become so interesting and attractive and that happened. Mallory does not have a narrative arc. I mean, right. that, that's what you're I, really I, saying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely not. And 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 so how did this become so attractive? And the answer to that lies in the 19th century, as do so many things. <laughs> right. right. Um, <laughs> I, I, because because Mallory's text basically was, you know, was famously, well, famously, you know, it's all relative, but I mean it was it was printed by William Caxton, the great, you know, early um bookmaker and seller, and then it sort of vanished, you know, and, and, and I mean, it wasn't important until the middle of the 19th century when the Oxford movement was going on and, and you know, the effects of Romanticism and, and sort of the beginnings of rebelling against what was happening, the, the create, you know, the, the, the rise of industrialization and mass production and, you know, suddenly the Arthurian material became really attractive to people and, and so maybe the answer lies there somewhere. Um, yes, yes, maybe so. Because I, I think that romanticizing the Arthur story, obviously most 20th century people, if they're reading anything, it's gonna be something 19th century, not something 15th century, right? Yeah. You know, if they're referencing something. So I think you're probably right. That probably was a big influence. Something I think you just touched on. Um, I don't know if you wanna talk about this or not, but. This idea of um, of the magic fading away somehow, I feel like that also touches our human desire for transcendence that you've talked about in the Keeping It All the Year blog that that we have. Yeah. Do you do you think that there is a connection there that's interesting and and relevant to the retellings of the author Arthur tale? I guess. Well, I could always talk about that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I, I mean, I mean, I isn't that what we're looking for? We're trying to get back to Avalon here with transcendence, right. why we, we yeah. want to transcend our modern world. Well, I, th I think ultimately it's, it's a connection to the concept of, um, 
of fairy of, of the realm of fairy and oh, yes. and, and i want to make sure that again well not again i want to make sure to say that i'm not talking about peter pan here i'm not talking about the dis sort of disnified or even some of the victorian you know flower fairy business that's pretty pretty silly f-a-e-r-i-e -E, um, right not yeah, f-a-i-r-y yeah um be, be, because that that is a thread through through western literature and thought is this this sort of other realm and, and and it continues to fascinate people i mean there have been very recent books um you know uh uh you know the jonathan strange and mr norrell Susanna clark's book that that actually i think made the best you know new york times bestseller list 10 years ago i mean it's like it, this is a, it's it's a perennial fascination and you know tolkien used it to you know huge effect in in his work um and there's so many different countless versions so you know that it's always interesting to me like what is going on there and and i do think it's connected uh to this idea that uh, that we talked a little bit about last time is, is what is fey you know what is what is um fated um you know what, what has portent use that word which is really a cool word you know sort of what what is what is heavy with meaning in, in all the stories you know the one thing they seem to have in common is although even though there's so many different interpretations is, is that there is this realm that is somehow apart and somehow transcends time that humans can somehow stumble into and it's dangerous it's fey you know it's not happy necessarily although it can be wondrous and you know i, I think there's some connections to plato's um theory of the forms you know this sort of idea of what would happen if you encountered the absolutes you know what what would it would be dangerous you know what about connections to peak experience that the mystics talk about you know like well, uh, I mean, on the cross uh, sure i mean the only the difference i would see is is those are ones where the self is utterly lost and and i'm not sure that's the case here but but of course one only loses the self temporarily interesting, interesting um but i do think you know this this it, it, it is um like the, the again i'm i'm weaving together so many different things but I do think the, the people who who go to fairy and have a positive experience is because they are able to transcend themselves, right? So, so they're probably yeah, I'm sure there is a connection. It, it, in other words, if someone goes to the realm of fairy with the idea of domination and power, they will, you know, the the, the outcome is not going to be good. Whereas, like in Tolkien's Smith of Wooten Major, if the the when when um, when the, the when Smith enters the realm of fairy, he is open to wonder and he is open to learning and he is he realizes how small he is, and th therefore for the most part his experiences are are positive and, and and he also willingly relinquishes access to fairy when the time comes like he realizes this is a gift and it's given and then it's taken away, and and that's how it is and and I think that. I mean, that's, you know, I love that line, we have become the masters and possessors of nature. I mean, part of the inherent problem with modernity is we have put ourselves, you know, at least we think we have put ourselves in control of everything. And of course, the reality is we are not in control of everything. And so I, so I think that's part of what's going on, this yearning for some meaning larger than ourselves. And, and, and you know, I'm not talking about a particular religious system or, or even answer, but just that's part of, I think, what we have lost to a great extent. I mean, I, you know, I still listening to you talk, I just think, why Arthur? Because I don't <laughs> right. think you see that, any no, of the, that in Mort. Right. And so that, and yeah. Is it because, so is the temptation because uh, we got, we've got to make Arthur into something more because in Mort, he's unsatisfactory. I mean, he's well, just, 
I can't help but think that's the 19th century. That is people like William Morris. That is people like Tennyson um, who were, who were, you know, I, I mean, I don't know enough about Tennyson to say why he latched on to it and wrote the idols of the King, which is this epic poems long, you know, yes. but his doing that launched all this, I think, I mean, because Morris yeah. and his buddies read that and then they read Lamort to Arthur and they got all excited about it. And yeah. I can't help thinking they were, you know, it was the dissatisfaction with what was going on around them. I mean, because what drives someone like Morris to actually write his own medieval romances down to the language, right? Not just like what happens, but, you know, if yeah. you go back to our first podcast, there is a randomness to the events and there is the language. I mean, he worked really hard, apparently, to, to you know, to, to write a romance, even linguistically. Right, to, make, to, to use archaicisms, yes, to, yeah. to make it sound medieval. And, and, and so, while, while people in the 19th century could still read and understand it, yeah. Right, and so that to me yeah. sounds like a deep dissatisfaction with what's going on around you. So maybe that's, you know, maybe that's what begins it. And then, and then um, because I mean, it is true, right? That there, prior to Tennyson, I don't think anybody um, rewrote, you know, the Arthurian thing. I mean, he, he's the one that sort of started it and then it's, it hasn't stopped since. Um, so, so that you know that's really interesting what, not sure about that yeah i don't i mean there's certainly no know there's no really well fam famous work certainly yeah um, i mean to me in my i mean i i have no basis for saying this other than it's a it's a hunch but it, to me it really connects to what the romantics were doing i mean you know if you think if you look at the early 19th century and what's going on in germany and england and you know and, and the birth of the Oxford movement in the 1830s, I guess, you know, this idea of, oh, we want to go back to Roman Catholicism. We want to go back to the mystical. We want to go, you know, we're, we're rebelling against the enlightenment. Um, it, it must have something to do with that. You know, yeah. it, it, this, you know, like if you, if you visit, uh, I mean, like a great example, if you visit Edinburgh, if you go to Scotland, you visit Ed Edinburgh, literally there is the medieval city and there is Newtown, quote unquote, and, and Newtown is still called that, but it was of course designed and built in the 18th century during the enlightenment. Scotland was, you know, a home of enlightenment thinking, University of Edinburgh, you know, Adam Smith, I mean, you know, David Hume, all these people. I mean, they, they literally, I mean, not them per se, but, but, but they looked at the medieval city and it was fetid and dirty and dark, I'm sure. And said that we're gonna build a city according to modern principles and it's gonna have wide straight boulevards. It's gonna be laid out on a grid. It's gonna be light, it's gonna be, I mean, there it was, there was the enlightenment, right? And then, you know, barely, less than hundred years later, people are, are, you know, at least some intellectuals are, are saying, you know, something we've, we're losing something here, you know? And then that's, and that's like when, when, in the Anglican church, you know, they, they started, you know, there were parishes that didn't celebrate the Eucharist for, they just didn't do it. They stopped doing it. It was mystical. It was irrational. And so then you get this, you know, you get this whole movement of people that want to bring all that back and you, you get Coleridge in his old age, you know, um, and so to me, somehow it's connected and I don't know what the, I mean, I, I don't know enough to know what the connections are, but, but it seems to me that it has to be, there's a connection there. And, you know, what Tennyson, Tennyson, isn't he kind of a bridge, you know, sort of from the romantics to the later 19th century. And then you get Morris and his company coming along, <laughs> yeah, you know, snarfing so. that up and, yeah. you know, translating the Icelandic sagas. And I mean, it's, 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 you know, something different, something different than the world we've created. Yeah. Um, so that doesn't answer the question, really. Why, why, why Arthur? But, why Arthur? But that's certainly what it's doing. It seems like. And there, there, there may be some other elements that have to do with uh, Englishness that I'm not going to connect to. I know because I yeah. just don't. 
have that background. So, I mean, should, should we sort of close by looking at what this tells us about fantasy? I mean, I feel like we, we are sort of on a quest to figure out what fantasy is doing and why people, some people like it so much. <laughs> I mean, you are not one of them. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's yeah, correct. Your, your patience with that is, is remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Bradley was fun for a while. Yeah. Well, I, I, I really enjoyed Bradley because I have read various versions of this and I've read a fair amount of fantasy. And this was a really new thing for me as someone who took the stories and, you know, re, I mean, I mean, if you're not, if, if, if our listeners, if you're not familiar with it, Marion Zimmer Bradley's The Mists of Avalon, and then she wrote a bunch of books following on, which I don't know the quality of those, but the, the first one is certainly well done, but it's, it's very intentionally retelling the story uh, from a, from the female character's point of view. I mean, it's a, it's a feminist retelling, uh, at least. It, well, yeah, you got to think about it, 1978. I mean, it, it was... Right, right. It was it's just, told from the female point of view. I, I wouldn't argue with that. And and yeah. it's also very... Um, it has the complexity of a good novel. In other words, yeah. the characters are developed. Right. Um, the world is... I think... I, I know you talk about world creation, Alfred, but I think that the world is very credible. You... you yeah. It's... And it's really long. I mean, that's why it's so long because it takes a long time to do yes. all of that. And I think yeah. it spans how many generations? Three or four, I guess, by the time Thanks. you start yeah. with, um, what's her name? Oh, shoot, I can't think of her name. But I mean, it, it spans a number of generations. And so it's a very long story, but it's very it's very well done. I certainly, um, and I was impressed, really quite impressed to the degree that anyone can believe in magic it was believable right right well and, okay so then that, <laughs> not, that, not as much suspension of disbelief as in some cases <laughs> right well and so that gets us to you know really the question you're you're bringing up as a, as a closing is so why do people do this why do they write fantasy and as someone who's guilty of it myself in a minor way um push of the pendulum his ya yeah. novella being published on dedalia.net yep um you know i i think people need myth um particularly today. I mean, again, I, I think it's back to what we were talking about earlier. We now live in a world devoid of myth. Uh, you know, most human beings, you know, our species has been around for what, roughly 200,000 years, give or take, you know, when they find the next fossil. And people, for most of that time, people have lived in a world of myth. They, they've had stories that, you know, made the world meaningful for them. And, and, and part of what we have done in the last few hundred years, which is just a tiny fraction of that experience, is, is we have stripped away those myths and, and, and in a very determined way in some cases. And so I think part of what that's led to is a, is a shattering of, of the world. I mean, that's why we have, I think, part of, part of the reason we have our culture war today. There are lots of other reasons, but, you know, there is no myth that ties us together. And so people are sort of creating their own, you know, whether that's some version of, you know, evangelical Christianity or whether it's, you know, uh, fantasy or what, but I mean, I, th I think people need myth. And so I think, I think what troubles you is it raises this question of do myths have to be true, you know, to work. And I would say, you know, they don't have to be literally true, but, um, but they may contain truths in them. Um, you know, we probably need to do an entire podcast of, you know, like uh, on that topic alone, but it, it, it strikes so the me the disjointedness that, that you mentioned, this lack of meaning. I think that 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 the the world of Mort Darthur definitely echoes that. I mean, I, th there's right. a there's yeah. the way Mallory tells that story 
And he used a lot of sources, I think. So the way he tells that story, you see that. You see a world where things don't quite make sense. And, and that's the time he was living in, right? The 15th century, it was all right. falling apart. I mean, the, the medieval right. world. And he had a political goal too. Those two things have are parallel. So then the question, so I guess that might suggest maybe one reason why Arthur seems to be a good place to explore meaning for these modern authors, mm. possibly. Does the myth have to be true? Well, well, it's a metaphor, right? So metaphors have to bear truth. Yeah? Yes, sure. Yeah. They don't have to be true. Well, and, and but see the very word myth, right? Is I think evocative of what we're talking about because the word itself has taken on in in modernity the word word myth itself. If, if I say myth, immediately people think, oh, it's not true. I mean, immediately. But that's a misunderstanding. Well, I I totally agree, but but it's significant to the discussion though. Yeah. Right. I, I think right, that, sure. that right there is a symptom of our problem. <laughs> yes. Because yes. when I when I use the word myth, to me, that's not where my mind goes. Where my mind goes is, oh, this is this is a framing story to make sense of experience, to make, right. make sense of our existence, and we right. need those, right? And 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 there's lots of different ones, and we, you know, that's a whole other question of metaphysics, but but the mere fact that it, by and large, and, and I teach young people, I can, you know. So do you. He teaches this from experience over and over and over again. As soon as you use that word, you know, right, missed because right. we've been taught that that word it means false, right? It, it you know, it, it's it, it's so. So if we so if we substitute the word metaphor, um, somehow Arthur is a good is a, is a metaphor that that makes meaning real for. Some people, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm still, I'm yeah. still having a very hard time with any of these interpretations. I mean, maybe not whites because white is, white is really commenting, I think, on the current, his current state of affairs. And I think we very well could share that perspective now. But when you look at an interpretation like Bradley's, I'm not quite sure what to do with this. Mm. I mean, do we equate do we equate the magic and Avalon with something that we can call real? Because I certainly can't call magic real. There's no way. <laughs> this is just not happening here. Right, right. So, so is there is there is that a metaphor? Is magic is the magic is Avalon? Is it a metaphor for something that? Well, I think I would. Can? Yeah, I would suggest it's what you brought up earlier. It's transcendence. I mean, you okay. know, however we find it in our lives, we need it. And, and, and it doesn't, I mean, and, and I would, I would say it's important to separate. Um, it doesn't mean there's, there has to be an ontological reference point. In other words, I would argue that you can experience transcendence, whether you believe in God or not. I mean, you know, but I, but so let's set that aside so people don't get excited. Right. But the point is the experience of transcendence, the experience of experiencing something larger than yourself, uh, uh, you know, timelessness, um that transcends the everyday i mean that's really in the end what that's what avalon is that's what fairy is and and i would argue that humans need that or otherwise we're just you know animals scrabbling for resources okay and so do you, so do you would you hold then that what gets you there it's different for different people i guess i mean is, is yeah. that yeah i think so and i just think we we have inherited right this rich British tradition of the concept of fairy, um, 
but it's certainly not unique to that culture. It's just, no, know, oh no, actually, we're, yeah. we're just sort of steeped in that particular one, right? Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it speaks, I guess, to us, but it wouldn't speak to other people, but there are other ideas like that that would. Um, but I mean, in my head, it goes, you know, it goes all the way back to, you know, it goes back to Plato and, you know, like this, this yearning for, for absolutes, this yearning for something more, there, there has to be something more lasting than, than the disease and filth and war and destruction of human, human existence. And, and, you know, and we have sort of handily held those things at bay in the last 200 years, but at what cost? I mean, that's excellent. You know. Well, so, you know, again, I think this is one of those things where there isn't a right or wrong here, but there's a lot of interesting things to think about to, you know, maybe perhaps um, have us think about the question of meaning. Yeah. So next time you watch Monty Python and the Holy Grail, give it some thought. Well, that's as far as we're going to go with that today on Beyond the Labyrinth. Don't forget to visit Dedalia.net, where you can follow our podcast and see what's new with our many projects. And look for Beyond the Labyrinth anywhere you listen to podcasts so you can join us next time. Next time, we will be beagling about Douglas Adams' concept of the electric monk in Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. What in the world does it mean? <laughs>